Welcome to Always Searching, the podcast challenging conventional wisdom about health and wellness. I'm your host, Dr. Sarah Lynn Mark. I'm delighted that you're here. My guest today is a highly decorated NASA astronaut, combat fighter pilot, an active social entrepreneur, and a Star Harbor colleague. He's also the author of the critically acclaimed book, The Orbital Perspective. Welcome to Always Searching, Ron Guerin. Good morning, Sarah. How are you? I am doing great, and thank you so much for joining us. You have such an extraordinary career, but it begins somewhere, Ron. Can you tell us a little bit about what motivated you to pursue this path? Did you always know as a child you wanted to be a fighter pilot and an astronaut? Well, I didn't, I didn't know it my entire life, only since July 20th, 1969. So, uh, you know, I watched those first footsteps on the moon, along with millions and millions of people around the world, and uh, I determined that that's what I wanted to do when I grew up. I wanted to be part of that group of explorers that was able to step off our planet and look back upon ourselves. And uh, that dream came true about four decades later. It's so amazing when you think about that night. That was truly the Apollo effect. I think everybody was touched by it, and our generation just thought it was possible. I remember that night, my dad taking me to the window and saying, one day you're going to fly in a plane. You're going to go back and forth between the planet and to the moon. And I was like, sign me up. That sounds fantastic. Did you also have that feeling that anything was possible? Yes. I, I, I felt like I was floating on a sea of possibility. And... Um, you know, I, I, I had these you know, fantasies about being the first person on Mars, and I would immediately <laughs> dismiss dismiss that as a ridiculous thought because humanity would, would get to Mars way before I even got out of high school. So, um, and here we are, know. you know, still know. a long way from Mars. But um, yeah, and, and because if you extrapolate out the, uh, the trajectory of where we were at, you know, going nine years uh, from mm-hmm. never flying in space to landing on the moon, you know, that, 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 is a pretty steep uh, curve, and you know so much so. If you look at 2001: Space Odyssey, oh yeah, um, yeah. you know we, we were supposed to Love be on, a, on our way to Jupiter by 2001, yeah. right? So, yeah. Um, Absolutely. I, I love that movie. I, I think I watched it 20 times, seeing all the different symbolic you know, meaning yeah. and thinking that was our life. Well, what led you towards the path of becoming not just a pilot, but a fighter pilot? Yeah, so when I was in college uh, and I was a sophomore, um, we had the first space shuttle mission, STS-1. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I remember in being in my dorm room looking out the window at a starry upstate New York sky and and mm-hmm. that dream was was relit in me and the next literally the next day I went into my academic advisor and I said I want to start taking math and science courses as all my electives and I a couple weeks later enrolled in a in a I took an introductory flight course uh, at the local airport. Um, and and we, which was, you were at Oneonta, right? Oneonta, yeah. So upstate mm-hmm. New York, upstate so, New York. So State University of New York at Oneonta. And mm-hmm. I took a um, just a, an introduction to flying ride with an instructor. And it was funny because um, that was the first time in my life I had ever been in an airplane. I was 19 years old. And Seriously. so the first time I was ever in an airplane, I was at the controls. <laughs> and so oh my um, gosh. And I flew that flight and I was hooked. And I knew at that moment that I wanted to be a pilot and uh, ended up getting my private pilot license at Oneonta. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, then, then when I graduated, I graduated um, a, a semester early with a degree in business economics. And I went to the local bank and I said, uh, how much money will you lend me? 
uh, on a student loan to continue my mm-hmm. education. And they, and the answer was $5,000. So I loaded oh, wow. up my beat wow. up Fiat Spider <laughs> and, and drove exactly. down to, drove down to Florida, uh, and enrolled in Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University. And my plan was I would stay there and, and I was taking a, a course in aerospace engineering. I was trying to get a, a second um, bachelor's degree in aerospace engineering, and I would stay there until I either ran a, out of money, or <laughs> I um, or I got accepted as a, into the pilot training program at the, mm-hmm. in the Air Force. And luckily, both those things happened at the same time after about two semesters there. So, did you choose the Air Force because of your love for flying, or because they were going to provide a scholarship, or because it was a lead way to get you to become an astronaut? What, what was the the driving well, there, factor? I wanted to fly, and so it made perfect mm-hmm. sense that I would go to the Air Force because that's what the Air Force is chartered to fly. <laughs> so, yeah, well, yeah, I was just saying like Navy pilots and you know landing on ships. Yeah, yeah, no, I never, I never even considered it. I, I, yeah, I mean, again, yeah. I was just a naive kid yeah, that didn't know any better. Make. And, uh, and yeah, the Navy's for boats and the Air Force is for planes. And I want That's planes. So, funny. And, so I didn't Just really... don't tell that to the Navy pilot, right? No, no. I mean, I, I understand now that that was an incorrect, <laughs> <laughs> an incorrect view. Um, right. And I ended up, I did spend a year with the Navy. I, I went through Navy test pilot school. So I got to, mm-hmm. to fly with the Navy for a year. So tell me about that. Um, you know, it's so interesting because so many people who talk about wanting to be uh, fighter pilots. And when I was at NASA, I worked with several of them. Um, but for you, this was sort of another part of your journey. So when you went into the Air Force, was it a, a cultural shift for you? How did you adapt to that? It was a little bit of a cultural sh- shift just because I'm, I'm, I wasn't used to uh, rules and regulations. and. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I bet, especially at, coming and, out of Oneonta and upstate yeah, New York and having yeah, and, freedom. Yeah, exactly, and bureaucracy. And uh, But I, mm-hmm. I, I adjusted well. Um, and, uh, you know, I went through officer training school in San Antonio, and then I went to pilot mm-hmm. training in uh, Enid, Oklahoma, Vance Air Force Base. And, uh, again, I, I really, really love to fly. And uh, and I think when you love to do something, you naturally excel at it. So yeah. that was, a, that was yeah. fortunate. Did you serve uh, overseas as well? I did. Yeah, my first assignment was in Germany. I, I was uh, stationed at a place called Han Air Base, which doesn't exist mm-hmm. right now. I, mm-hmm. I fought in combat in uh, the first Gulf War, um, and uh, and uh, yeah, and so I, I had a couple tours over overseas. So, what was it like? I hope you don't mind me asking to go into war for the first time. Was it? frightening? Was it exhilarating? Did you just not think about it? You had a mission? What was going through your mind? Um, all of the above. Um, my okay. job in the squadron, I, I had I was selected to go to um, fighter weapon school, which is the Air mm-hmm. Force version of, of Top Gun. And so mm-hmm. when I graduated from uh, that training course, which is a, a six-month training course, mm-hmm. um, my job was to go back to the squadron and to be basically ensure that my squadron was ready to go to war if called, um, okay. that, every, that everybody was trained, and that if we did go to war, that uh, we were employing the, the, the correct tactics, right? And so mm-hmm. we, when we got to Desert Storm, we were the first unit over there um, that was capable, the U.S. unit over there that was capable of stopping the Iraqis from continuing further south mm-hmm. into Saudi Arabia. So we were really worried about, you know, the, 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 the Iraqis had just invaded Kuwait, and we were worried that they were going to push into Saudi Arabia. And so, right, um, you know, at the time I was stationed at Shah Air Force Base in South Carolina, and we took off with 24 F-16s, and, and we were told to, to head east, and we'll tell you where you <laughs> 
tell you where oh you're going goodness. when you get there. Um, oh. And, uh, you know, 17 point something hours later in, a, in an F-16, mm-hmm. um, 11 aero refuelings, we land, we land in, in um, the Middle East. And then for the next six months, my job was to travel all around theater uh, and coordinate what would become Desert Storm, this this mm-hmm. um, war plan, with all the other units, with all the other nations, and uh, to make, to ensure my squadron was ready to go to war. So our unit flew the first daylight raid of Baghdad. Um, we really? um, we had uh, military targets um, just I just outside of Baghdad. That. Uh, mm-hmm. But it was in broad daylight, and so it was good. It was a very oh, bold and very, very da- bold, dangerous yeah. mission um, that went off without a hitch. And so that and that was what I had a big part in planning for the la- previous six months. And so that was, mm-hmm. but it was. I mean, it was surreal knowing that you know it's this. You know, I've, I've practiced this thousands of times, or practiced things like mm-hmm. you know these mm-hmm. these tactics and these procedures thousands of times. But this time it's for real, and this time there's people trying to kill me. So. Yeah, while I'm, yeah, while I'm doing it, I'm trying mm-hmm. to kill my friends, and so it was, mm-hmm. uh, it was, you know, quite an experience. And when we, and I, I did have missiles targeted at me. I had, we had MiG MiG twenty nines try and uh, intercept us, which which were shot down um, by our forces, um, wow. and it was a, uh, it was quite a, uh, quite a. Um, uh, ex- exciting is not the right word, but I think, you know, it was, it was a very, uh, it got your blood pressure going. Let's put it that I way. I bet it did. So after that experience, were you like, Hey, I can't wait to fly again. Or you were like, wow, <laughs> what is, what, what were your emotions? I mean, cause well, so few people actually have that kind of experience. Yeah. You know, I, I, I write about it. Ext- my, my latest book is called floating in darkness and I write about okay. uh, the combat part of it extensively and not just, not just from a historical point of view, but uh, to, I dive really, really deep into the um, what I was going through and the, the moral considerations and the and the thoughts of mm-hmm. mortality, you know, my own right. mortality and and all of that. And it was a it was a very um, uh, tr- transformational experience uh, in that uh, it really put thing different things into into a new light um, and. You know, it, it, we we tend, at least Hollywood tends to glorify war, and there's mm-hmm. nothing there's, there's nothing yes. there's nothing good about it. I mean, it's mm-hmm. just at times it's a necessary evil, uh, unfortunately, mm-hmm. in the world that we live in. But um, there's nothing glamorous or glorious or anything. It's just it's it's humanity's greatest failure. Um, it's yeah. it's the insanity of the human ego at, at its worst. Um, and but it also leads to incredible acts of selfish selflessness and and bravery mm-hmm. and and uh, it brings out the worst and the best in people because in mm-hmm. that you know crucible of uh, of fire. Um, so yeah, there was there's a lot of aspects of that to, to deal with and, and um, that have shaped you know who I would become from that experience. Would you say your military experience and what you just described? is literally on par even more than when you became an astronaut and flew into space the first time, or is it just so totally different you can't equate them? The, the, it's different. Uh, in the one case, um, mm-hmm. I mean, war is by definition fear-based, mm-hmm. uh, and space travel and space exploration is by definition on wonder-based. And so <laughs> both are very, very powerful um, mm-hmm. catalysts for action, uh, motivators, mm-hmm. 
but what I've learned through the through those two experiences is that only on wonder leads to long term action. Only on wonder uh, leads to collaboration and cooperation. Mm-hmm. Only on wonder leads to um, people willing to to make you know self sacrifices for the for the greater good. Right mm-hmm. now, you could look back and you could say, well, that happens in, in military and in combat too. Mm-hmm. You know, people do make self sacrifices right. for right. a greater good. People do cooperate and collaborate. Yeah. But mm-hmm. that, that's not because of the fear. That's because of the on wonder of the camaraderie. That 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 is a mm-hmm. byproduct of that of that fear, um, mm-hmm. which is a secondhand effect, basically. And it, it's interesting because it really was it played such a major part of your life and that whole transformation from your you know young kid up in upstate New York to joining the military to serving a war, and then the next the next step in your life to become an astronaut. Um, how many years from the time you fought to when you became an astronaut candidate, and what was that like for you to go through that transition? Yeah, so so it was a it was a long and winding road. I mean, I, I ended up after the <laughs> after the yeah when we returned from the war, I was selected to co- come back to um, the Air Force's Fighter Weapons School and, and serve as an instructor there. Um, hmm. And when that tour ended. I mm-hmm. did a lot of soul surfing, searching because that was that was the pinnacle of the of the flying career. Yeah. It doesn't, it's yeah. only downhill from there at that point. Or at least I, <laughs> yeah. at least I thought it was. I mean, mm-hmm. you know what was what I was facing was you know at least a few years of, of flying a desk. You know, um, you know <laughs> a staff assignment maybe at the Pentagon or something like that, and that really didn't excite me. And then mm-hmm. you know I kind of remembered that I had this dream of, of becoming an astronaut, and so I decided to, to pursue that dream. And there was at least four or five bona fide miracles that had to occur before <laughs> I could even put in an application. Um, I, had never been to, I had never been in test pilot school. I was too too old to go to test pilot school. I didn't have uh-huh. um, the right degrees. I, I never, I never mm-hmm. did get that bachelor's degree in, in engineering. Uh, I was medically disqualified. I mean, it, it, it really? was ridiculous. I mean, and my wow, commander- I did not know this. <laughs> my commander at the weapons school, you know, I, I marched into his office and I told him, and he was also a, a good friend and a mentor of mine. Um, you know, I, I told him what I was going to do and he was livid with me. He was like, what, have you lost your mind? (laughs) You know, first of all, you're, you know, you're set up for this, this wonderful career and now Mm -hmm. you're just going to throw it all away by pursuing this obviously impossible dream and, Mm -hmm. um, make a long story short, all those miracles came true. Um, and I was selected and, got to fly a couple times in space. So Well, you make it sound so easy and we know certainly it is not and it's extraordinarily competitive. Um, but I just want to ask you one question. You knew you were good, you said. What were you good at to elevate you to that pinnacle of flying? What was that one skill that made you stand well, I, out I, from I, others? I, I didn't know that I, uh, I I was good, but I did have um I did find that I had um an, an affinity for f- flying aircraft, and mm-hmm. and I, I think that um, my ability to perform in that environment, I think, was was primarily due to my love of that environment. I just absolutely love to fly, and that shined through in the performance. And um, yeah, I just I just loved being in the air, and I loved everything about it. But um, you know, and and I worked really hard at it. Too. So, um, and when you were in combat, what kept you calm when missiles were being, you know, directed towards you, you had people around you that you wanted to protect. What, what kept you 
calm, what kept you balanced? Being panicking or worrying serves absolutely no purpose. Actually, it's, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a negative force, right? Mm-hmm. And so, what what fighter pilots and, and people you know people who are in high stress professions do in order to perform during those high stress pr- professions is to kind of channelize their attention in, into those things, into only those things that they can they can control. You know, when okay. we're strapped, when we're strapped to four and a half million pounds of explosives on, on yeah, on the that was pad, the next question. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I mean, when you yeah. launch a, on a space yeah. shuttle or a Soyuz or whatever else, mm-hmm. you know, there's a thousand or a hundred thousand things that could possibly go wrong, of which maybe you know one percent of them you have any control over. And so, if you're worrying about the hundred thousand things that can go wrong, then you're not going to be able to handle the one percent when it happens. And so, you have to channelize your attention onto those things you actually have control over, which is a good way to live life too. Because I was about to say, exactly. Even in our day-to-day life, you know, we get caught up in all these details and trivialities and yet, you know, there's probably only one thing you could change truly. Right, right. We need to, whatever, whatever is beyond our control, we Mm -hmm. need to accept that as, as Mm -hmm. what is, because it already is. Yeah, Yeah, that's probably the most powerful, most powerful message one could deliver to oneself is to know that. So knowing that, and you come into the astronaut corps and going through the selection process must have been pretty rigorous uh, for you, or, or was it not after what you had been through in regard to all your other experiences? Um, so I, I applied twice. Um, the first time, the first time I made it through a number of cuts, but I never made it to get an interview. And I was, I was pretty upset because um, a lot of things happened along the way. I got a letter from the Air Force that said, uh, thank you for your application, because you have to apply to the Air Force first, and then the Air Force decides who they want to forward on to, to NASA. And I got a letter basically saying, you know, thank you for your interest in the, you know, um, in NASA, um, uh, you, you, unfortunately, you're medically disqualified, and we, and we wish you all the best of luck in your future endeavors. You know that sort of thing, and and I was blown away because I, I actually had there was a diagnosis I had that was overturned, and to make a long story short, um, a miracle happened, and they said, you know what, we're going to let NASA decide, not us, and I, I took it as very. Um, Encouraging, and then you know, I, you know, I was awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross um, to, for Desert Storm, and I was the, the selection board called me up, and they wanted to know why I was awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross. So it seemed really, really promising, like things were going somewhere. And then I didn't get called for an interview, and I was, uh, I was, I was a little disappointed about that. But the second time I applied, it, I, ironically, I, I was rid of my emotional uh, attachment to the idea of becoming an astronaut. I still wanted to be an astronaut, obviously. But it didn't. It lost its life or death importance to me. Um, if 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 I became one, that that's great. If I didn't, then that's great too. I, and and I, I I did I did have that mindset going into the first time as well, but not intellectually, but not emotionally. I still had emotional attachment to the idea of that. Uh, but the second time around, I was completely detached from it, which which is probably why I got selected. <laughs> You're probably right. Yeah, yeah. You, you were balanced in your discussion. Yeah, and when I went into my interview, I was like, "I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna uh, let them know who I am, and if they like me, they mm-hmm. like me, and if they don't, they don't, and I'm not gonna try and pretend Good. that I'm something Good. that I'm not. Good. Just because Excellent. I think they'll like, you know, I'm trying yeah. to guess what they want, you know. Mm-hmm. 
it's, it's that authenticity. That's probably what they loved as well. So you got selected. You went through the whole process um, of the selection. Then you had that one year of training, you know, to be an astronaut candidate. And what what was how many years from that did it take to finally get your first flight? first mission. So I was selected in the year 2000 and I flew in the mm-hmm. year 2008. So it was uh, eight, eight years. years. Um, wow. Part of that was because um, uh, three years after I arrived, we had cl- the Columbia mishap. That's right. And so, and so yeah. we lost a, a few years mm-hmm. uh, of flying. You know, we stood down while we tried to figure out mm-hmm. what happened and what and yeah. how we were going to fix it. Um, but uh, when I when my class was getting ready to get assigned, um, we got the, the the pilot there were seven pilots including me in my class and we all got a, a email from the chief of the astronaut office saying would any of you consider flying your first mission as a mission specialist and hmm. you know i answered i'd be honored to fly anywhere you need me to fly and, <laughs> yeah, exactly and, uh, apparently that wrong. was the, apparently that was the right <laughs> answer because uh, a month later i was assigned uh, as a as ms2 which is the flight engineer uh, on the flight mm-hmm. um, and uh was able to do three spacewalks on that mission. So that was a, that was a, quite an experience. So tell us about that. You know, everyone kind of lives through you here. You, you get selected, you go through the rigorous training for the mission, which, you know, takes time. When you were finally strapped in your seat, what was that motion that you felt when the shuttle finally launched? Yeah, it's, it's surreal. I mean, up until the, the, up until the time, the solid rocket boosters light, you're wondering, uh, is it, are we really going to go? You know, is it really mm-hmm. going to happen? Mm-hmm. And then as soon as those things light and, you know, when you watch it on, when you watch a shuttle launch on TV or even in person, you know, you see this billowing what, you know, they say, um, yeah. and, and lift off of the yeah. space shuttle yeah. and you see this, yeah. you know, white billowing mm-hmm. smoke. And then that you see this, this rocket kind of lumbering out of the, out mm-hmm. of the white smoke. Yeah, right? it does lumber. Yeah. yeah so, so it looks like, you know, everything's happening in slow motion when you're in the vehicle it feels like you just got launched from a giant slingshot. You're just, wow. you're leap off the pad and you're going somewhere and you're going there fast. And so there's no doubt. Um, but you know, uh, you're focused on your, on your, you, you've got six other people counting on you not to make a mistake, uh, and to keep, keep track of all the things you need to keep track of and have the plans in place if things go wrong and, and it's a team. And so mm-hmm. you're just hyper-focused on all the things that you need to, to, um, Keep keep your your eye on. Did you have a moment there? You're like, oh my god, I can't believe I'm actually doing this. Did that ever? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, always, yeah. that's always popping into your into your head. Yeah. Um, and, and then you know when the when you make it to space, when the main engine yeah. is shut down, you're yeah, weightless. You get minutes. to unstrap. You get to float over to a window, look at the planet. You know, it's so what was that like for you? That's about eight minutes into a mission where you you know you finally sort of achieve microgravity, so to speak. What, what yeah. did it feel like to you? Well, the, was it was it a sense of flying again or did you, how did it feel? Well, I mean, I, uh, we're, I'm strapped into my seat for quite a long time afterwards because we mm-hmm. have, I couldn't unstrap until we, you know, we have a number of burns that we have to do and there's a whole bunch of things mm-hmm. that we have to do. And so I was yeah. pretty busy, probably, I don't know, for at least a half an hour or more um, after we made the space. But once that was all over, and we, you know, we're on a path to rejoin with the uh, rendezvous with the space station. And then, you know, we, we started, we're well into the process of converting our rocket ship into a spaceship. Um, and I got up to unstrap. The first view really unstrapped out the window was looking straight down. And I was actually a little disappointed because I was, 
I was like, ah, oh, it just kind of feels like I'm flying in an airplane at high altitude. It doesn't really, you know, it, it's not, it, it hasn't really knocked my socks off yet. Right. But then, um, my crewmate, Karen Nyberg and I, uh, opened mm-hmm. up the payload bays of, of the shuttle. Mm-hmm. And as the payload bay opened up, uh, the wider it got, the, the wider our view of the planet. And eventually we saw the horizon and the, you know, incredibly mm-hmm. thin blue line of the atmosphere. And in that moment, I wasn't just looking down at, a, at you know, Earth, like from high altitude airplane, I was looking at a planet. I was looking at a planet hanging so in the blackness of space. Overview. Yeah, a, a planet that my crewmates and I were no longer on, that we were detached from. <laughs> and that, that was a significant moment. Kind of like severing that umbilical cord to which exactly. you've always known. Exactly. Did you, how many days, to, you've had several missions, uh, how many days total have you been in space? Uh, something like 178, somewhere around wow, there. That's an incredible number. And then on that 178th day, did you still have that same sense of awe as when you first went up there? Yes. Yeah, because oh the God. Earth is always, I mean, it's, seeing the Earth from the vantage point of space is, is just absolutely breathtaking. Uh, and it's 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 never the same. It's it's changing. I mean, your your perspective is changing at five miles a second, right? And so, the colors are changing, the lights changing, the, mm-hmm. you know, where you are over the ground is changing, and it's. It, I mean, it's an incredibly moving visual experience, but it's much much more than just a visual experience. Um, you know, you're detached from the from the world. You're outside mm-hmm. the frame of the masterpiece. So imagine you're yeah. sitting on a on a beach, looking at a you know uh, a sublime sunset, or maybe you're at the rim of the Grand Canyon, looking out at this you know breathtaking ancient gorge, and and you're overcome by the beauty of those of those scenes. In both cases, gravity is pushing you down into that scene. You're within the frame of the masterpiece. You're part of it, mm-hmm. right? But mm-hmm. for the first time in my life, I was outside of the frame of the masterpiece. There was there was a nothingness, a void, separating me from the the, the beauty that I was observing. And that detachment, I think, is a significant part of, of what we call the overview effect. Um, it's a significant part of being able to understand how we're all not only interconnected, but interdependent uh, and and you get a glimpse at the true unity, um, not just that we as a species are called to, but uh, that all life on, on earth is, is called to. Um, and so it's, it's really a moving experience. Seems like you integrated a lot of that into your book, The Orbital Perspective, where you, you took that global approach. What, what, was there a moment up there that was really transformative for you? I mean, it sounds like every single second could be, but was there one moment? Because I know the days and, well, however we define days when you're in space, every 90 minutes you have a sunset, sunrise, um, that really was transformative for you, where you really began to see your role in the universe and what you could do. Yeah, there, there was qu- quite a few moments. I mean, well, every every moment was was transformative. <laughs> but um, yeah. you know, just the 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 book that you mentioned, the Orbital Perspective, was my first mm-hmm. book. And you know, in a nutshell, what the light bulb that really popped on uh, over above my head on that first mission, on both my missions actually, was the benefit of international cooperation um, of, mm-hmm. of not just inter- international cooperation, but the, the value of true collaboration of, of truly working to set aside, setting aside differences uh, and building a, a platform of collaboration from a platform of on wonder, uh, which means that we are um, putting aside fear, putting aside our differences. Uh, and that, that was the purpose of, of the orbital perspective to use that experience. And the orbital perspective relates to the overview effect. Um, mm-hmm. 
actually the fourth edition of the book, The Overview Effect, which is a book written by Harvard professor Frank White about um, mm -hmm. the transformation that astronauts can experience after seeing the planet from space and in space. Um, uh, the, I wrote the, uh, the forward to that book where I compared the overview effect to the orbital perspective. And so if the overview effect is that shift in perspective that you can have, it is that mm -hmm light bulb that pops over. It's is the realization of the unity and the interconnectedness and the interdependencies of, of all life on our planet, then the orbital perspective is what you do with it. The orbital perspective is the call to action that right. comes from the overview mm -hmm. effect. It's a refusal to accept the status quo uh, on our planet. It's a it's a commitment to work courageously towards social and environmental justice. Um, you know, it's it is the call to action that comes from it. So that was the purpose of the orbital perspective. Floating in darkness, um, I go much, much deeper. And, and floating in darkness is more, it, it's an autobiographical narrative that serves as an mm -hmm. allegory for the evolution of society, not only where we've been, but where we need to go. So I use uh, events that happened in my life, you know, fighting in combat, um, growing mm -hmm. up in, in New York, um, living on the bottom of the ocean, you know, flying space missions uh, as a, an allegory for the, the evolution of society. And um, the purpose of that book is to shine a light towards a future that we'd all want to be a part of, to uh, illuminate a path out of the divisiveness and polarization that is uh, is a cancer in our society right now. Um, right. And it's it's to get at the root cause problems uh, that you know all these other problems are just uh, mere symptoms of, and and to really dig deep. So, Ron, did you have um, cosmonauts on your missions? I'm sure you did uh, in the station. Well, yes. I, my, my second mission, I flew with the Russians. I was on a, on a Russian sp uh, spacecraft. So, did you all ever just talk about what's going on on this planet? Did you have those kind of discussions, or did you know to keep it separate? And are you in touch with your colleagues now with what's going on in Ukraine? Yeah. I mean, we we never had political conversations. Um, okay. We and it wasn't because those conversations were off limits, and because they were irrelevant. That's what those ridiculous people down there on the surface of the Earth care about. Mm -hmm. um, but we okay. see the bigger picture up here, because um, okay. we we do look absolutely ridiculous from space. And um, I did a thing where I used to interview my crewmates in the cupola. I used to call it a cupola corner, just a little interview. And I and I interviewed Clever. Russian cosmonauts, and mm -hmm. and they talk about how ridiculous you know all these things we fight over are, all these things that we think are important, uh, that we need to take care of our planet, that uh, war is is you know humanity's biggest failure. You know, you know they they mm -hmm. would voice all the same stuff that that that, uh, that we think is 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 correct, and and um, it's, you see things from a different perspective up there. You, you see the true reality of the world that, you know, it's this, you know, multidimensional, uh, highly interdependent living, breathing organism. It's not the two-dimensional colored map that hangs in classrooms around the world. Right. That's an artificial right. construct. lines drawn, where there are borders and whatnot. D did you have any spiritual moments where, you know, you looked out to the stars and you sort of became one with the universe, you know, that that type of experience, were there any religious experiences, anything that kind of shifted how you saw life in general? Uh, I, I mean, the whole thing was a spiritual experience. <laughs> I mean, every okay, moment that's... is a spiritual experience, but, um, but yeah, I mean, we not only look at the earth, we look, we look in the opposite direction. We look at it and at it in infinity. And mm -hmm. I mean, there were times on spacewalks where, you know, I had no view of anything but the universe. I couldn't see the space station. I couldn't see the earth. I couldn't. And, and 
Yeah, what does that feel like? I mean, to go out into that black void and, and you saw stars, I assume, but just to know that that was it, that's you. What, what, what was going through your head? Your yeah, I, I hear a lot of people talk about how, the, how small they felt. I didn't feel small. <laughs> I felt like I was, I feel like I expanded okay. out into it. That as you just said, that this was me, that, mm-hmm. that, um, you know, we are the universe becoming you know, uh, conscious of itself. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, that it was a, it was an incredible experience. I always love asking people, um, especially those who are familiar with space exploration, if they believe that there's other life in the universe. So, so what's your thought on that? Um, I, I just I, I, I go at it from a statistical scientific <laughs> view that you know okay. the universe is incredibly incredibly big. It's you know we can't even fathom how big it is, and it doesn't make any sense that we would be the only life. It doesn't make any sense that we'd be the only intelligent life in, in the universe. You know, as Carl Sagan said, if, if we're the only ones here, what a, what a tremendous waste of space. Um, <laughs> and, but I don't believe that, you know, we have aliens working at the local Seven Eleven or, you know, there's of people <laughs> doing, you know, I, I, that, that uh-huh. we're visited regularly, uh, you know, um, secretly. Um, but, you know, the other thing is, you know, the earth is defined by the radius, the radius of the earth is defined by where people are, I think. And so if we, if we flew a spaceship, you know, a thousand light years from the earth, the radius of the earth just became a thousand light years. And I think if we have contact with other life forms in the universe, uh, I don't think they're going to, I think that we're, we're going to have more in common than we have that are, that are differences. Um, um that's, that's just my, lesson. It's just my guess. I mean, I don't know that for a fact, but um, yeah, I think we'd be surprised at how much we have in common. Well, we're all made of stardust. So you started out saying you wanted to go to Mars. If you're offered a ticket, will you go? I certainly wouldn't go on a one-way trip, and <laughs> okay. uh, I would much prefer to go to the moon. Um, but uh, <laughs> I'm hearing that a lot from people these days. Yeah, um, yeah the view's better on the moon. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm a strong proponent that we need to exp- push human um, presence out into the solar system and beyond, into the galaxy. Um, I, I, I am a strong proponent of, of having a permanent human presence on Mars, uh, but that's all predicated on having a robust uh, permanent human presence on the on the Moon, our closest neighbor. Um, that that that's the key to unlocking all of those other uh, exploration goals. And hopefully we will take that next step so we can create the Artemis generation just like we were created and formed into the Apollo generation. So let's mm-hmm. hope for that. Amen. <laughs> yeah, it's time. It's definitely time. Well, Ron, I just I could go on for hours with you. I know we just sort of scratched the surface and I can't wait, wait to see your new book. And I just I, I want to thank you for your service to our nation and for your incredible commitment to helping us transform this world for the better. And thank you so much for sharing some time with me today. You bet, sir. It's been it's been my pleasure. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. And until next time, we're always searching. Thank you so much for listening to Always Searching. Please share it with your community. This podcast was produced by Noah Jones and hosted by me. Dr. Sarah Lynn Mark. Until next time, we're always searching.